HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food and beverage radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Hey, buddy. Just the two of us today. How you doing? I'm good. It's been a while since you and I have been in the studio together, isn't it? Uh, yeah, at least two weeks. Uh, couldn't couldn't make the show before, and then uh, definitely last week was Thanksgiving, so uh, we didn't have a show, um, and you and I were both out for both of those. So we're back, baby. I know. Let's let's see if we've still got it. Uh, there's some some interesting news, though. I mean, you know, we, even though we stopped uh, reporting it, the news does not stop. And there was something cool that you brought my attention to in Forbes, of all places, related to our particular field. Yeah, there's apparently a new product on the market created by a doctor called Safety Shot. And the claim here is it can cut your blood alcohol level in half in 30 minutes, in half an hour. Um, which I think is a crazy, bold claim. Um, I think also what's interesting, interesting to point out, not about what it does or what it claims to do, but is that it's, it went immediately to a public offering. So this is available on on the NASDAQ. The, the call letters are S-H-O-T for shot. Um, and uh, I don't know, every time I look, I haven't invested in it myself yet, but I look at it every every couple of days and I see that it's climbing. So there's interest for products like this. And I don't find this to be too shocking given how fascinated the public seems to be right now with low and no ABV. Maybe there's obviously some, you know, currency to mine in the notion that, well, maybe, maybe I still want to drink full, full throated, you know, alcohol, but I want to lower my blood alcohol level. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure if Damon was here, he would say that he wished whiskey didn't have alcohol so that he could drink it all day long, which I think there's, there's which he uh, does say. A wisdom to that. But I also, mm-hmm. man, first of all, I read something like that and I'm like, what's the catch? You know, I'm sure. just like, skepticism we, abounds, right? Yes. It's like, are we all, is this, is this the thing that turns us all into zombies in 20 years? Like I wouldn't have, we, we wouldn't have seen it coming from this particular sector, but it also, nothing would surprise me at this point. Um, I also just don't understand, like, if you, you know, I don't want to be that guy who, like, you can't do the crime, don't, you know, can't do the time, don't do the crime sort of situation. But I, I know, I would note that there are other recreational drugs that we take and that are legal, right? 
but I don't think there's any other recreational drug where we would like to have a counteractive drug to undo the drug that we just took. Yeah, exactly. And I'm also right? know, know your dose is what I'm saying. Like, don't don't get to a place where you need to reduce your blood alcohol level by 30 percent. Just don't just drink 50 percent less. I know. And I, I go back and forth on this so much because I exactly I'm like, look, know what you're doing and be smart about it. But also, like, that's the same argument that's used against uh, <laughs> to draw an analogy that I'm sure is going to get me in trouble. That is exactly <laughs> the it's it's what I love to do on the show. I love to just I this is my one hour a week that I get to scream into the hurricane and just let whatever happens happen. But that's the same argument that people use against needle exchanges, which is the thing that I'm very much for. You know, it's the, it's the, the, if you make something easy to do something dangerous, that's easy to do, people are going to do it. Mm. Sure. But people are going to do it anyway. And isn't it better if they're being safe about it? I'm just a little bit, I'm curious how this is going to change. I mean, just the time of year that we're in, I'm curious how this is going to change holiday parties because I feel like you're going to see check averages. If everyone, if all of the finance bros start coming to our establishments uh, for their, you know, big company buyouts armed with cases of safety shot, your check averages are going to fucking skyrocket. Stock up on extra Jameson in advance because there's going to be, there's, if, if there's no consequences, then there's going to be no limit to the overindulging. Sure, sure. So, you know, as a, as a bar owner, I think to myself, well, do I then stock this stuff so that people can come in and drink double, uh, of course, upping their check average, and then purchase this from me, of course, upping their check average so that they can go back down to a normal level? You know, I don't know. I feel like it's this, again, my my initial jump just went to like, well, you know, marijuana is legal in many states now, and, you know, mushrooms are on the rise in states becoming legal as well. We don't have a counteractive to those. No one says to themselves, I'm going to get real high, but then take something to get me half as high quickly, right? Just You just don't get that high. I mean, I've been in a position where I wished that product existed, but but it doesn't. And that's just good. And, and then I learned that maybe I shouldn't do gravity bongs anymore. You know, it was a learning experience <laughs> for me. Uh, well, speaking of getting your blood alcohol level lower, uh, <laughs> I hear I hear you want to get my blood alcohol level higher for the first time in a few years. Yes, yes, uh, I do, and thank you very much for choosing that moment to segue into this. But yeah, yeah uh, this is kind I, of. A, I needed a big... to get off that train. Whatever we were doing there was 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 enough. <laughs> uh, no, this is this is news for me uh, tonight. I'm actually going to be pulling my first bar shift in almost four years. Uh, yeah, the last one I did, it was March 14th, 2020, uh, before we all took two weeks off to flatten the curve. Remember that? Thank God that worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I, I trained at the space yesterday and it was, it was really good to be back. You know, it was like, I was a little nervous cause I was like, oh geez, if I like lost the edge, am I not going to be able to hang anymore? But like you, you know, when you set your, your chucks on those, like, squishy rubber mats behind the bar you're just kind of like oh yeah this is i know how to do this i'm back baby the only thing that tripped me up and made me feel like a boomer who couldn't hang was that since the last time i did this the the handset that you give people to like cash out on and the qr codes are i don't know how they work i just don't like beer is still beer gin is still gin i've got that part but when it comes to like people wanting to pay their check i'm like ah technology 
I'm going to have to call my grandson to help me figure this out. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm happy for you to get back behind the bar. Um, I know it'll knock some rust off of you and get you back in the game a little bit. Uh, but also, I would, I would ask, this hasn't been your goal for four years. What's making you do it now, uh, aside from possibly the obvious, which is finances? Um, what's making you want to get back behind the bar? I mean, it's the obvious. It's it's finances. Um, I posted a little bit about this online. Uh, the New York Times ran a piece that I found absolutely infuriating where they were talking about how, and I hope people can hear the air quotes in my voice when I do this, young people are having bad vibes about the economy. And essentially their point was like, look, unemployment is low. Jobs are plentiful. The only things that are expensive are groceries, gas, cars, rent, mortgages, and utilities. Other than that, everything's fine. Yeah, what are people complaining about? And I'm like, well, yeah, I have I have four of those jobs you're talking about, and I'm still struggling to make rent every month. But beyond that, I don't know. I, I My life has changed a lot since uh, the before times, you know. Uh, I have an apartment by myself now. I live decently far out of the city down in Bay Ridge, which I love, but I will admit it is far away. And working from home mostly, I have to like invent reasons to leave my apartment. And I miss that like that action and that energy, you know. I miss the sure. I miss the just put your head down and like work through it and being up on that stage and like being able to entertain people and have fun and joke around like it's nice to be back. So if you want to see me doing it, uh, I'm going to be working Wednesdays and Saturdays, Bolton and Watt. It's on uh, Houston and A in right Manhattan. Right there, do your neighbors, buddy. I know. you See, you and me. I was like, how close can you put me to Souther? Like, un- can you make it uncomfortably close? Um, I mean, we'll pick a place on the map and you're probably close to me. Um, but, uh, <laughs> that's true. I made a joke about myself. Um, <clears throat> no, but that's great that you're you're very close to me. Uh, you're on Houston and A. I'm on 6th and A. That's incredible. Wednesdays and Saturdays. I look forward to it. That's going to be great. Yeah, absolutely. I might I might even stop by tonight. Who knows? It'll be it'll be a fun surprise. Yeah. Um, speaking of fun surprises, uh, this isn't even really a surprise. We knew this was coming, but uh, we've talked for too long at this point, I think. We should definitely bring our guest in because he's awesome too. Uh, joining us from Corning & Company, their head of production and one of their distillers, Rox Tiborolobo. Thank you so much for joining us, Rox. It's good to have you here. Hi. It's nice to be here. <laughs> Nailed that! Nailed that segue, Greg. Way to go! It's what it's it's what it, that's why you have me on the show for the segues. After this, I just go and like you know put my feet up and put myself on mute and have a coffee and a muffin. Um, <laughs> yeah. But rocks. So I, I actually didn't get this before uh, we jumped in the studio. Where are you coming to us live from right now? So so I'm actually at my place in Oakland. So I work uh, Corning and Company. The distillery I work for is located in Rona Park, so about an hour out from here. But I, I live in Oakland uh <laughs> california so i'm just i'm just chilling in my apartment actually today uh, oh, nice. <laughs> Oakland. i hear it's the brooklyn of the bay area <laughs> you know <laughs> i haven't spent a ton of time in brooklyn but i could see that uh, <laughs> uh so tell us tell us a little bit about uh your background and how you came to uh not only be with uh corning and company but also a lot of the the activism that you're doing in the um the bar world and generally the the, the drinks community um yeah so uh I started out, so I should start out with the fact that um, I'm a uh, citizen of the Chiricahua Apache Inde, um, the from the San Carlos uh, nation on my father's side, and my mother is Radmuri as well. Um, so I am a Native American, indigenous, however you want to say it. 
Um, and I actually grew up, part of the reason I got into the alcohol industry to start with is that um, my my mother's people, my grandmother specifically on that side, um, was Radamuri. And they do these sort of like ancestral corn beers that are ceremonial for a lot of stuff. So I grew up doing that with her. Um, and I started out do like doing these sort of home ferments and, and always found that really fascinating. And then I kind of forgot about it for a while. I, I originally went to college for molecular toxicology. I was planning on going to medical school. It was the 2008 recession though. So I ran out of money and then couldn't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and cause the, nobody, nobody was going to give a loan to, to, you know, a 20, 22 year old. <laughs> for for several hundred thousand dollars to go to medical school. Uh, so I ended up working in biotech for a while uh, and then eventually kind of found my way uh, about a decade ago into the alcohol industry through beer. Um, I started as a beer brewer. There's just I wanted to go into distilling, but there wasn't like a lot of options back in 2013. There were very, uh, the, the laws in California kind of changed around that time um, to allow like you could, you could have tasting rooms and stuff and things like that. So a lot of little distilleries started that year, but like nobody was like hiring. There was just like the legacy distilleries and stuff like that. So I started out in craft beer. Um, what I noticed really quick when I got into the alcohol industry is that um, there's not really a lot of natives in the alcohol industry. Uh, some of that's just like a lot of the stigma that comes. I mean, we have like a very like precarious relationship with alcohol. It was deliberately like weaponized by the government against us in a lot of cases. Um, and then from that came a lot of like really messed up racial stereotypes where like, you know, there's the drunk Indian stereotype and there's the whole thing where uh, there's this really common sort of myth that we don't process alcohol properly that like we can't process it the same way that everybody else does. And there's like no higher, that's not true, but you know, that's been categorically proven wrong. Um, but it, it still persists. Like I've had people as recently as like a year or two ago, bring this up, be like, Oh, I thought you couldn't have alcohol. And I'm like, I literally make it for a living. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like my mother's people have been doing it for thousands of years. Um, <laughs> so it's one of those things where, and I, and both of the tribes that I come from historically make like traditional corn beers, granted low ABV sort of situation, but we've always had a relationship with alcohol. So it's a very strange thing for me to hear that from people. Um, and that's a big part of how I kind of got connected with Chalky and some other folks, as far as like getting involved in sort of like activism and connecting the indigenous community in the alcohol world. Cause there's so few of us, like I, uh, I can tell you, that there are like three native distillers. Right. <laughs> Aside from me, there's like three. I got super excited because the Michael James Jackson Foundation, which which we'll mention, I, I got a scholarship from, but they did their most recent scholarship awards. And one of the one of the dudes this time around was native. And I like immediately slid in his DMs, was just like, oh my God. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> birds, of, birds of a feather. We're both here. Uh, that's, that's awesome. I want to go back a little bit before we get too far into, you know, um, what you're doing today and, and reel the clock back a little bit. You mentioned you were going to school for uh, toxicology, right? So like the study of poisons. Am, am I wrong with that? Yep. And now I make poison. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, it is the study of, of poisons and how they interact in the body. And now I make them. So so that actually works out in a really roundabout way, uh, turns out. <laughs> yeah, that's the connection I was going to hope, hope to make there. Um, <laughs> but but in the notes here, it says you, you, you traveled the world working in that arena. You were in Helsinki for a while doing that, right? 
So actually, I was in Helsinki. So this is the whole thing uh, that I ended up working in biotech for. So while I got my degrees in molecular toxicology, I started out at a, J- a junior college uh, in, in here in Oakland uh, called Merit. Um, and I worked there as a TA and they started a microscopy program while they were there. Um, and so I was in the first cohort of that and also helped build that program while I was there. I would stay late with like um, the the techs and hang out there. And that's actually how I ended up in Helsinki while I was still in undergrad was I got really good at working with these weird microscopes. They're called confocal microscopes. And it's it's like a they're really common in um, medical research. Basically, you shine the the quick and dirty of is you'd like shine a laser through a pinhole and it allows you to take these stacked layered images and make like 3d images fluorescence images of cells um and i was really really good at that and i did that for a long time as contract work uh that's actually what i did to pay the bills until i moved to the alcohol industry it paid much better uh i just didn't (laughs) particularly care about it it was just something that i got randomly good at when i needed to make money in school and then happened to do for a while to make ends meet (laughs) Well, I mean, I, I imagine that that kind of has to be one of these, you know, I, I've, I've noticed this a lot in my own career is that like, as I'm, you know, uh, approaching my, my very solidly mid thirties, it's just like all of the skills that I picked up throughout my life through these like weird coincidences, they seem like they all kind of like fold back together. And it's, I don't really believe in fate, but I do kind of have a notion of just like, Oh, interesting. This that's what this is for. Like that's what the skill is for. Do you feel that now with some of these skills that you honed working in a field that's as precise and as scientific as distilling is now? Oh, absolutely. And that's one of those things that I I had a much easier time I think than a lot of people despite the fact that I never went to school for either brewing or distilling like I'm I'm just doing that now 10 years into this. <laughs> Um, because I had such a heavy science background already. And so what I feel is like really helpful with that too, is it gives you different perspectives. Cause I remember my um, brewmaster at the first brewery that I ever worked at was very upfront. Like he, he would come to me and ask me a lot of questions when we'd be having like fermentation issues, because he's like, look, I went to brewing school. This guy went to like our, our QA manager went to brewing school. We all do this. I know I'm going to get the same answers out of them as I do like that are already in my head. And that's not what I need. He's like, I like coming to you because you look at things from like a different perspective, but still in a really like scientific way. And so I get more interesting, like problem solving skills out of Mm -hmm. you. And that's kind of it. It, You know, it takes all kinds. You can come at it from a different perspective, but I did a lot of microbiology, you know, in my undergrad and things like that. So all that comes back into play when you're like looking at fermentation science and, and even just being precise and paying attention to like pattern recognition and things like that becomes really important when you're, when you're like distilling something and you're trying to like nail down sort of a procedure, get an SOP for a certain type of distillate and things like that. Like how, what percentage of cuts am I doing and this and that and taking like really good notes is a big part of science. So that's very helpful too. (laughs) Sure. Sure. And I'm, I want to know how this ties in with um, I, I, I also just really want to circle back to the, um, the ancestral corn beers that you mentioned and kind of bringing that, is that, is that something that you're messing around with in your, in your work as a brewer and as a distiller? And is that something that you feel you can bring a new perspective to given the lens that you're able to look at it through based on your background? Um, to some extent, I mean, uh, and here's the thing is like, you know, uh, I do a lot of work with bourbon and the corn whiskey and things like that. So, so 
that always kind of brings me back to that time period when I was making these corn because that because fundamentally that's where that all starts. I was sure. always really fascinated by this whole concept of like fermentation and, and something completely changing and also these tiny little ecosystems that exist. So that's always like my favorite part of the process. Um, I'd like to bring more of that in uh, to my work. Like right now, you know, most of the stuff that we make either for our own products, uh, you know, the Sonoma distilling brand that's under Corning and company or for like contract products, most people want to use yellow dent because it's cheap and it's easy as far as that's concerned, but you're getting more interest in using these sort of like, uh, these different corns, uh, these more heir- heirloom, I, I don't like that term, but you know, these sort of ancestral grains that have been around for a long time that are less popular because they don't produce as much sugars, but have these really complex, beautiful flavor profiles. And that is something that you try to convince kind of people of is like, no, I know we have this idea, especially with whiskey, that's like, oh, most of the flavor comes from the oak and stuff. And I think if people actually bothered playing around with some of these grain, they'd find that there's such a like depth and delicacy that comes from the grain itself. And there's now like studies, like people have done some stuff with with heirloom corns and like research in Texas and things like that regarding like totally different flavor compounds and different flavor profiles, terroir, if you will, that come from these different corns and where they come from. Um, and I'd love to see more of that. I also love like the wild fermentation aspect of it all. Like we do all open top fermentation at our place. And while we obviously Rad. inoculate with, yeah, we do, while we inoculate with yeast strains to, to speed the process along, obviously, and get higher alcohol yields, there's still some of it's just left up to what it is because you've, you just and all all these mashes like sour up and things like that. Uh, and actually, if you're talking about like things like single malt, l- lactic acid, bacteria, LAB are, um, really crucial in forming some of the precursors to like flavor compounds, things like gamma lactone formation um, that will come out later when you put to barrel and stuff like that. So, so it's really important to kind of get all this diversity of flavor. I think if you want a really complex, interesting whiskey. Right. If you want to stand out, I know there's a lot of rye producers out there right now who are, um, you know, growing, uh, as you said, ancestral or heirloom grains. Um, but I, I honestly, it never made the jump in my mind that, that, obviously that could be done with corn as well. So that's very interesting to hear about. There's a greater interest in biodiversity. Um, but the thing that I wanted to ask you is that was was there an uphill battle to try and get people to realize, no, it's we don't just have to take like the the high yield, low flavor varietals of corn. We can actually get some very interesting, very complex and nuanced flavors that people just don't experience or run across in their day-to-day life out of these interesting, you know, subspecies that have been around for hundreds of thousands of years? Was that something that you really had to like fight for in the beginning? Oh, these are things that people are still fighting over. I mean, I said, and it's fine. I mean, I, I understand it because when you break down price points, like, like yeah, I the, totally get it. You, if you, you're running a small distillery or something like that, I mean, the bottom line is, is that it's very expensive. And then what you're putting into the, to get some of these grains, like, cause it takes, you know, there's fewer people growing them and they're trying to like support themselves and, and, it, and a lot of these things grow slower. And then again, the yields are less. And so the product you're putting on the shelf is going to be more expensive. So are you going to be able to sell it? I get it. I actually genuinely do. Um, so it's still an uphill battle. Again, most people still use yellow down. I just think uh, one of the things that I run into a lot with folks is just like that 
also just like credit where credit is due like a lot of native communities have been keeping these these seed you know doing seed keeping and 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 keeping these varietals alive um but then you get distilleries that uh, like i know there was one that did this like jimmy red corn thing uh and they and these two guys basically got credit for like bringing this corn back from the brink of extinction and i'm like no, you didn't. People were keeping that alive. Like there, <laughs> like I, I know that just because some white dudes ran into it, it's now important and it matters and it and things. But like people had been keeping that alive. People grew it in the first place, and then were keeping that alive for centuries. Like, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I can I can totally understand that. I think the elephant in that room is well. There's a couple elephants in there, I guess. But the elephant in that room is as from the distiller's perspective. That's a, an incredible expense. And even if the flavors are more complex, more interesting, more delicious, right? Which is ultimately the goal. We want to make delicious products. Even if all of those things are true and I'm willing to spend that money as the distiller, then that elephant turns into the public's elephant, elephant which is I'm not willing to buy that bottle because it's too expensive, right? So it's like, it, it's, it's, it's two hurdles. The first hurdle probably is the more um, agonizing because you're dealing with a distiller who has to say to themselves, I realize that this is maybe a better product, but if I can't afford to easily put it into a bottle, then the, the bigger elephant is that the consumer isn't going to purchase it in the first place. Yeah. And that happens all the time. Again, as I sort of mentioned earlier, like the bulk of what we do is contract distillation. And at the end of the day, you can offer clients like price points on on how to do something from grain to glass that sort of situation and and it's inevitably up to them and and you know you you can try to convince people to make a more complex or interesting product but at the end of the day you know they need to be able to sell it as well right i think i think i think a quick argument maybe in in the food world would be something akin to like Sure, I'd love to eat Wagyu beef all the time, <laughs> but it is very expensive. So I'll eat, you know, American beef, right? Like it's it's the more commoditized, right? It's it's just easier to easier to get, easier to purchase, easier to easier easier. To yeah, spend. and and going broadly, you know, that all goes back to the whole idea of like how agriculture in this country kind of exists. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. the big agribusiness ha makes all of that so much easier for you to buy. You know, this corn that's been. That that's pretty universally like kind of bland, but it yeah. it yields good sugars, <laughs> mm -hmm. and that's about it. And now that and now that that's like the dominant, almost only thing that you can find. You know, it's cheap and it's easier to to get a hold of. And of course, people are going to go with that. Like right, and so just... then that that puts the onus on the distiller to use their skills in in on the other end of the product, which is to, as you mentioned earlier, like get some flavor from the barrel, get some flavor from the char, get some flavor from age, etc. Or even fermentation and stuff like that. And, and fermentation, sure, yeast, of course. Yeah, yeast profiles and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I definitely want to get a little bit more into the nitty gritties of what you're doing at uh, Corning and Company and also into uh, some of the, the work that you're doing for the indigenous community within the bar community itself. Uh, but before we do that, we should definitely take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. But I promise we'll be right back with Rox Tibro Lobos. So stay tuned. The world is changing faster than ever, and you need a website to go with it. Whether you're a seasoned pro looking to build your following or just starting out with a brand new idea, you need a landing page that's bold, innovative, and uniquely yours. Whatever your passion, you need a web designer with experience, panache, and heart. We can't help you with any of that. Hi, I'm Lou Bank. And I'm Greg Benson. Are we Silicon Valley tech visionaries? No. 
we're podcast hosts, and that's basically the same thing. And we're here to tell you about Ancestral Agave Syrup. Ancestral Agave Syrup is the 100% pure nectar of the agave plant. Now, wait a minute, you're thinking. I've had 100% pure agave nectar. Well, not like this you haven't. That stuff is processed with a diffuser, which introduces acid. Plus, it comes from Blue Weber, a monoculture that dominates farms, depletes the soil, and won't help you grow your brand or expand your e-commerce functionality. Ancestral agave syrup, on the other hand, is made by slowly cooking down the pure agua miel from Salmiana agaves in Hidalgo and Tlaxcala, two states that have been harvesting those plants for generations. It also won't expand your e-commerce functionality, but it will grow your brand if your brand is person who makes kick-ass margaritas or pecan pies or pancakes. Unfortunately, the families behind this tasty stuff are being offered big beer company bucks to rip out their agave and plant barley instead, which would be a crime because ancestral agave syrup is about as far from the processed stuff as 100% pure Vermont maple syrup is from that sticky bottle at a diner. So don't build a homepage from one of several easy-to-use templates, but do grab Ancestral Agave Syrup. Today, our first 25 customers will also receive a special limited edition Agave Superhero comic book. So do not wait. Protect the land, make better drinks, and save the bats by grabbing some today. Go to... Wait, what was that about bats? Uh, yeah, it's an important food source on the migration path of the Mexican long-nosed bat. Huh. Yeah, the flowering stalks of the agave also provide protection from predators. Oh, that's cool. Should we get back to the ad now? Yeah, let's do that. Go to AncestralAgave.com or click the link in the show notes to grab some today. Ancestral Agave Syrup. It won't help you build a beautiful website, but it will make your cocktails taste really, really good. And we're back. You're listening to the Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. In the studio today, we've got Rox Tiberalobo. I hope I didn't butcher it. Uh, <laughs> hanging out with us. Um, and we're talking about the indigenous space and representation that needs to be sort of widened and created more uh, in distillation and fermentation uh, and, and the whole alcohol world. Um, let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, let's, let's dig into what some of the things you were saying off the air about how maybe there's a bit of respect that's being overlooked by some makers um, where they just simply need to reach out to the communities and, and uh, understand where and where and how they might be overstepping their bounds. Yeah. One of the things that like, you know, people ask a lot, especially when I've done, you know, panels in the past where people are asking like, well, how do I like make it a more welcome, like th make per the distilling world, like a more welcoming space for native folk. And I'm like, well, learn to, like actually talked know some native folks maybe go out i mean <laughs> <laughs> good first step i was like i was like maybe go to a powwow there's intertribals everywhere you can you can meet your local native community but also be in communication with the people whose land you're on with regards to like uses uh you know you see this a lot more with like botanical spirits in particular like i've done you know we've encountered people in the past that use like sacred medicine plants like white sage that aren't available even to their own community. Like it's been driven to the brink of extinction in the wild um, and people, and, and that's a valuable like religious ceremonial, like medicine plant to certain native communities. And, and it gets used as a botanical in things like gin and, and just in a really disrespectful way um, without consulting or like, 
actually like touching base with those communities. And the same thing with like, if you're going to do like a foraged product, it's really important like that it's like, I want the diversity of these ingredients and stuff like that, but it's really important that you're connecting with your local native communities because people rely on a lot of those plants and those can be an important either food source or like community resource. And you need to know how to harvest those things correctly. A lot of people just go in and think that you can pick things and there's certain times and your native communities will know that. And then it's also knowing that certain things are off limits. Like I said, like the white sage thing or Palo Santo medicine plants that really are very like spiritually interconnected with the folks around that use them and that shouldn't be used in such a frivolous way um to to make those spaces more welcoming because it's it can be hard when you see people doing stuff like that to feel like you have a place where you belong in this industry (laughs) yeah and and we've been talking a little bit on this show both on and off the air about how there just isn't there just aren't that many indigenous folks in the drinks industry to begin with. And you've said that, you know, one of the big things that you struggle against is not only, you know, making, making the voices of a small group of people loud enough to be heard by the people who are doing these gins, but also just that it can be, I imagine it gets kind of lonely after a while. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. When I start, so in beer, there's definitely a few more people, but it's like, when I started out, like, I didn't know really anybody else native that when I started as a brewer that, that I was working at the time. I mean, now you have some like, there's some bigger like native owned breweries and things like that, but distilling is still really, really small. And part of that is actually um, legal issues. A lot of people don't know this, but we legally couldn't, basically it was federally illegal for us to own a distillery until like 2018. Um, what? That's uh, okay. So, 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 so technically speaking, what it was is that you could not have a distillery on tribal land, but mm. what do, what land do most natives have? <laughs> yeah, right. So that was federally illegal until 2018. And it was the folks at, um, I want to say it's the Chihalas tribe, but the talking cedar folks, um, who really fought to get that law overturned. And that's why there's only like three native owned distilleries in the country right now, because again, it's, we're talking like five years, <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> so, so it's also like, there's, there's literal, and you know, I've, I talked earlier before about like some of the stereotypes and stuff like that, but people don't understand that they're like, people are like, Oh, like pass it off. Like it's not a big deal. Or like that's in the past and like need to understand that those stereotypes have very real, like legal consequences for us in situations like this, because the reason that law exists was because of these sort of drunk Indian stereotypes and things like that was that you can't, Oh, they, they can't have, have distilleries on their land. Also just, you know, crippling us as far as like money making and stuff is concerned because the federal government's really big on that, but (laughs) (laughs) it wore wore a lot of hats that law did. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, to be fair. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's, I mean, that's a huge part of it is that, you know, when I got into this industry, like, again, it's like that, that opportunity wasn't really available. Like you couldn't ever be an owner type situation because like, again, I'm, I'm never going to own land that isn't like my people's land type situation. Like I don't have the money for that, <laughs> right? you know? So, so the idea of being able to build something like that, and to be fair, I don't want my own distillery. I like being a production worker. I like just being on the floor, uh, <laughs> 
but you know it's one of those things that like a lot of people couldn't even consider so why would you even think of this as like a career path <laughs> sure sure just because you've decided you don't want it specifically doesn't mean that other people didn't maybe make a decision that they did want it and then found out that they couldn't have it yeah exactly <laughs> systemically denied um <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about what what the work is that you do um, at the um, at the distillery Corning and Company. What what products do you guys make, and how what's the, what's the sort of day to day over there? Um, so yeah, so I work as the production lead, and I'm a distiller there. Um, and predominantly, uh, you know, uh, we're making a lot of a combination of like grain to glass spirits, but also we do a lot of contract distillation. Um, we uh, that's generally grain-based spirits right now um though we do we have done some some brandy as well um but for the most part and we and we've had people help us with gin we're not like set up for it we're mostly like a pot still situation right now that we are getting a larger column uh next year at some point um but we originally started as a whiskey distillery with our like own brand Sonoma distilling and, and have since expanded into doing contract work. And that's that the parent company, um, Corning and company where we do multiple brands. Um, and most of that's like grain based spirit. So we do a lot of stuff grain to glass where everything, you know, we don't, we're not a farm distillery. We just have grain come in, obviously mash it, ferment it in house. We do all open top fermentation currently. Um, and then uh, we'll transfer it over to to one of our pot stills. And and these are decent size. We have six thousand gallon fermenters, five of them, and our and our foresight still is about three thousand gallons. Um, we also have two smaller, like sort of little uh, Hoga finishing stills that are like two hundred and fifty gallons that we use for smaller distillations and finishing products from time to time. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, it sounds fascinating to be able to work in a distillery in general and make a, a core line of products. But then you do contract work, which means any old body can come to you and say, "Let's uh, let's let's make a let's make a whiskey specifically for my taste or, or my my uses or, or things like that." So you get to. I feel like yeah. there's a broader there's a broader brush of experience that you get to have at a distillery like this. Oh no, I totally. Uh, one of the parts I do like about it is all of the R and D related stuff. Um, I we had a soju brand come in, and mm. they're actually one of the people that we make. Uh, we've made a lot of product for. Um, but uh, I'd never made soju before. I'd never really worked with rice before, and getting the opportunity to to do that and you know, get their recipe and, and work with that and scale it to our system and dial it in on our system so that we're making a product that's, you know, even the, the owner said is like, you know, this sits side by side with the stuff we make in Korea and, and tastes exactly the same. Mm. And that's the idea is like being able to nail that down and get that in. And also like the distillation process for that is, like how we distill it is way different than how we normally make whiskey. So it's a very, uh, it's still like all pot still, but like how you run it is a very mm -hmm. different scenario. So instead, so traditionally, like when we do whiskey, you'll do two distillations. So you'll do, if you're doing like pot still whiskey, so you'll do a stripping run hot and fast, just pull everything out. Um, and then you'll do a, a finishing spirit run. You'll reload those low wines into the still. And then that's where you're doing your cuts um, for like this, with the soju product you're doing a certain percentage of like uh the faints from like a run like that um but all with like new wash like ferment 
Uh, and then you run it just super low and slow. This is a really traditional way of doing soju, really low and slow and do your spirit run, your whole cuts just from that. So it's a percentage of like faints from the previous run and, uh, and new ferment and you're just running it like a spirit run. You're not doing two separate runs. So it's really interesting and it adds a lot more of like the sweetness and like complexity from the rice, but it's, it's like a different way of running it. <laughs> that's awesome. And I'm sure that that's, a fascinating place to work because like, you know, you're not just going to be doing the same thing month after month, year after year. And I imagine that again, that kind of like outside the box thinking that you were saying you brought to your job at a brewery really comes in handy in a place where you're not just making, I don't know, the same exact botanical blend of gins over and over and over and over again. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to be challenged. And, and even just like, even if it never gets past like the bench top stage of things, cause sometimes the client's interested in something and you'll, you'll play around with it on a small scale, like lab system and present them with products. Like even just getting to do that is like really fun and interesting. I like, I like being able to solve little puzzles. <laughs> That's the part that I like best. I mean, cause at the end of the day, I think people forget, and this is true of brewing and, and distilling in a lot of ways, like mashing and distilling can be very monotonous in and of itself. Like, especially things like whiskey, you're, you're kind of just like, you do your mash, you send it to the fermenter, you send it over to the still. And once you've got your system down, it's kind of the same thing. You like running your still, but a lot of it's just sitting and waiting and then you do your cuts and it's, you know, it, it can get very monotonous. So things like little things like that are what really help keep you engaged. Yeah. There's certainly something to be said for both sides of that coin, right? The, the side of the coin that says, I want to do something new and different each day uh, so that I stay excited and, and, and into the game. But then there's also just as much to be said, I think, about that re repetitive nature that, that that generates what you know what we kind of consider craft. And I feel, I feel like at a place like Corning, you're getting a little bit of both worlds, right? Yeah, it's a nice balance. Like you're really able to like, uh, and you know, part of the reason I, I decided when I started at this place is because it was a whiskey only distillery. And I kind of wanted to get really good a thing. The distillery that I worked at previous to that, we did a couple different things. We did gins and whiskeys and vodka and even coffee liqueur and a bunch of other stuff. And I was like, I kind of want to stay where I'm best. Like I started in beer, so I know grain well. And again, it's like, you know, I grew up making corn beer, so I'm good with like corn mashes and stuff like that. I was like, let's like hone my skills on something and get really good at doing a thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it is good to like flex your muscles every once in a while, you know, every once in a while, like I've, this was the first distillery that I ever did a rum at, even though I have like friends that work in rum, it was nice to like challenge myself and, and get a chance to do that. Well, sure. Um, plus who knows, like, who knows what sort of technique or, um, I don't know, surprising, uh, um, discovery that you'll find when working on a, a different thing that you can then possibly use in the thing that you, uh, consider your wheelhouse, right? Totally. And that's, you know, that's also why it's important. I always think to, to continue like tasting and doing stuff and, and try other people's products and sit around as like, it, there's, you, it keeps you constantly thinking about like what you can bring to the table and what you can change and how you can play around and make things better or different. Um, so I, I'm always like really glad to like learn new techniques. I'm, I like to always be learning. This is like really important to me. I never think I know everything. <laughs> like I always think that there's room for improvement and to constantly be like learning and honing my craft and thinking about things. I think that's actually when we talk, that ties back into the whole diversity discussion though, is like when we talk about 
that that stuff is like the more people you bring in, the more different perspectives you get, the more different flavor profiles and ways of explaining flavor profiles and like different ideas about about taste and how to do things you can really incorporate in when you get a more diverse uh, group of people working in the industry because you know <laughs> no totally and this this ties back into uh one of my one of my uh one of my major gripes about modern liberals modern liberals i love what you're doing and i hate the way you're doing it um <laughs> Because I think a lot of times when diversity gets talked about, it gets talked about of like, oh, well, here's this thing we have to do now. And like, you know, I guess it's, I guess now we have to get different perspectives in there. It's like, no, like, don't, it's not, it's not a fucking chore, guys. Like, it's going to make your ideas better. It's going to make your products better. It's going to make you more money. It's going to help you learn things you didn't know you didn't know. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the, the again, like you were saying, it's like, that's why we need these outside perspectives, because if it's just people that look like me and Souther doing things, shit's going to get boring super fast. Yeah. Yeah. Very fast. <laughs> and we've seen that in the industry. I mean, if you look at like, and, well, in know, every industry, you know, yeah, from it's shoemaking like you- to tires, you know, <clears throat> it's like I you get these these big brands that are like making essentially the same product and that's and that's it because that was the flavor profile and you had the same people working and the same people doing stuff and that's you know people get over it they want diversity they want other things like they want to yeah. try new things <laughs> well, and, and and bringing this back to something that we that we talked about a little bit before the show you mentioned that there is kind of a, a a through line behind some of those um you know some of those ancestral beverages you mentioned at the very beginning of the show and some of the work that you're doing now so to kind of wrap this up in a in a nice little uh bow for us because again that's 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 what I do I'm the segue guy um <laughs> what are what are you working on now and is there a cool way that that's kind of informing some of the projects that you're taking on i mean right now end end of year is always slow for us winter is the slow time so i wish i was doing something super cool uh (laughs) right now we're kind of just wrapping up some of the 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 year's contracts that we do have some some interesting things maybe coming down the pipeline uh somebody i know we just had a meeting about somebody maybe interested in doing some whey based spirits and i'm really excited to like no yeah, way. I, I I've done some I've done some research into it before, and hilariously, one of the only native-owned distilleries, Copper Crow, uh, up in Wisconsin, uh, they have they do whey-based spirits. So I might touch base with them to find out how. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've done some research on it. It's a very weird fermentation process. It's a it's a whole other game, and and again, the yields aren't great because you're essentially taking a. But it's a waste product, so you're not really paying for things. So I'm very intrigued by the whole situation. Whether that actually pans out or not is is cool. But I'm interested to dig deeper into it. Uh, you know, we have a client approaching us for that, and and we also just are going to be playing around with a, at some point at the end of this year, uh, what I'm calling an, uh, inventory clearance <laughs> distillation. Uh, I've been calling it like cane and grain cause it's left. We have some leftover, uh, materials from a rum project we did for somebody and a different contract. So there's, it's going to be a combination, uh, rum and rye distillate in essence it's gonna be yeah (laughs) so we're gonna see it we're gonna see how that plays out yeah we're like we're like um 
well, we need to get rid of this before it goes bad. No sense in like wasting it. But uh, <laughs> how, do, how do we make it into uh, a this, like single like one off product thing? So I got to write the recipe for that. And I'm very excited to play around and see how that turns out because it's going to be weird. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm super stoked because my my like special like holiday old fashioned that I do, it's actually the the recipe is three parts rye to two parts Jamaican rum. And and then and then some like other things I throw in there, um, but I love that those those flavors combine stunningly well. So mm-hmm. s- send us a tax deductible bottle for research. That <laughs> seriously, yes, yes, yeah. Like I said, sometime before the year's out, we want to clear that stuff out because, like I said, we've got just like some extra molasses left over and some other and and some excess rye. And we're just like, yeah, let's just see what happens, guys. Yeah, I mean, th- this could become your, the thing you're known for the yearly you know the yearly production of uh of the scraps or what have you yeah, yeah. i call it uh we used to call them at the brewer- first brewery i went at we'd call them inventory clearance ales because we would like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> I- ICA I- C- is if you'd like uh and and you would just be like well what do we got like partial bags of in 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 the grain room and then like mm-hmm. what hops are about to go bad that we gotta figure out and then you just write a recipe based on that right <laughs> as that was always fun working as like an underling in a brewery just kind of being like uh, like being able to to see the matrix a little bit sometimes and be like oh they definitely needed to use this before it went bad or like uh, <laughs> like this clearly didn't turn out the way that they went for it too and that's why it was aged in lafroig barrels for eight months yes cover up any any mistakes that's what it's like i'm really excited to see how it turns out and hey you know if it doesn't turn out so great we can just pretend it never happened (laughs) and and, and we'll likely still drink it (laughs) i think i think it'll be fun i think it's gonna be really fun and really interesting but uh like i said it's 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 just sometimes you get to do fun weird stuff like that because happenstance again it's like well we don't want to throw it away. That seems silly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> might, might as well throw it away, like into the mash tun, and see what happens. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, if our if our listeners want to follow up on like all of the fun, weird, slightly fucked up shit that you've got going on, like that, uh, where is a good spot for them to to follow you? Do you have a, an Instagram for yourself or for the business that you want to plug? Uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, my personal Instagram, I promise it's really boring. It's mostly beadwork and stuff, but, uh, sometimes I post fermentation stuff uh, <laughs> <laughs> and about distilling. So that's, uh, uh it's at El Tiburolobo. So E L underscore T I B U R O L O B O. And then, um, if you want to follow what we're doing, I think Corning and company technically has an Instagram, but we don't have anything really up on there. So the best place to follow is probably at Sonoma whiskey, which is the Sonoma distilling brand that we produce. Um, other than that, uh, I would say check out, you know, our actual websites and stuff. See, buy some whiskey from us. It'd be great. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll have those links in the show notes. And, uh, if you were listening to the mid roll, you also heard that I'm working on a, a little venture with our fellow HRN podcaster, Lou bank. So we'll make sure that that link to get some of our, uh, super cool ancestral agave syrup that we're working on will be available in the show notes as well. So just click on that to see what all of us are up to. Uh, yeah, so uh, that's it for this episode of The Speakeasy. Thanks for tuning in. Um, please go to heritageradionetwork.org to check out many more shows just like this one. Uh, and also click on the donate button to uh, to give to the uh, network to keep shows like ours on the air. Um, that's it for this episode, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll, we'll see you next week. Cheers.
Cheers. So you don't shun the devil with your rock. The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food and drink radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Yeah.